I will be reading selections from Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on humankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too I see is from the hand of God. For without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? This is the word of the Lord. In our years of parenting, 
uh, Julia and I have found one guaranteed hit for young children, watch children of all ages. In fact, though our children are now mostly grown up, we have a small drawer of toys in our home for young children that visit. And this one toy always gets the attention. In fact, uh, we had the Denlinger Reeves family over for dinner over the holidays, and uh, when we pulled out this toy, one of the children says, wow, you can play with that inside the house? What's this fascinating toy? I had a bigger one here, but bubbles. Now, you've probably seen this, but have you seen the, the bubble wands that, I tried to make one this morning, but I didn't have the bubble machine to make it. So they, they make really huge bubbles. Now, you may not be particularly impressed by bubble makers, and, and you, can, you, know, you might be impressed by these big ones. Bubbles offer fun and laughter and whimsy, and you don't know what will happen to all the bubbles. They're a good distraction from whatever it is that we are doing, including listening to someone preach. But there's something about bubbles. As quickly as they appear, they're gone in the blink of an eye. In many ways, our human pursuits for meaning and for happiness can be like these bubbles that capture our attention. They wow us for a moment and bring us joy. Some of them appear very quickly and disappear quickly. Some of them take longer to build up. But what happens to them at the end? Does the joy that we expect them to bring last as long as we might hope? You know, these are the kinds of questions that the writer of Ecclesiastes brings to our attention. We began the Ecclesiastes series two weeks back looking at the idea of living life in reverse, looking back to our lives in the present, but from the perspective of our eventual death. And in that message, we heard from the son of Koheleth, who bookends the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 1 and chapter 12. And today we begin looking at the words of Koheleth himself that make up the bulk of Ecclesiastes. Here he muses on the finality of death and the meaninglessness or the vanity of all of our human pursuits. When we live our lives from the perspectives of our eventual death, this isn't an, a morbid exercise, but it's one that helps us make meaning of all that we do in this life until we die. And Orion began reading from the chapter, chapter 1, verse 12, where the teacher Koheleth, with the precision of an expert lawyer, begins to pick apart what most humans do to pursue meaning and happiness in life. He begins with this opening statement in chapter 1, verse 12, saying, I, the teacher, was, apply, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to studying and to explore my wisdom all that has been done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on humankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, chasing after the wind. Then Koheleth moves on from the generalities of this chapter 1 to specifics, one after another. He begins to burst the bubbles that often capture our attention and motivate us in life. Koheleth bursts the bubbles of pleasure in verses one, two, chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. He bursts the bubble of wisdom, even, in verses 12 to 16. And he bursts the bubble of meaning of work in 17 to 23. 
But his bubble bursting isn't the work of the neighborhood bully looking to ruin everybody's fun, although it seems like that at first. And neither does Cahaldus just speak from theory. He speaks as a wise and accomplished king. We see that in verse 12 when he says, what more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? In other words, he speaks as one who has seen it all. He, he, all that the bubbles have to offer and what life looks like from the other side of them, that's what he has to offer to us after the bubbles have burst. And basically he's saying, you know, I've pretty much done all there is possibly, possible to be done in the human endeavor. And you know what? All of it is meaningless. It's like vapor, gone, like a, the blowing of a bubble. In verses 3 and 10, we see what he does with his wealth. Of uh, Chapter 2, verse 3 and 10, we see what he does with his wealth. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guided by wisdom. And in verse 10, he says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. I don't know if you're, you're in that place in life where you can deny yourself absolutely nothing and enjoy whatever it is that you want. But Cahaleth did. With his wealth and influence, Cahaleth was able to enjoy all of life's offerings, going to the comedy club, drinking it up with friends. We get the idea that he held nothing back in his life. Well, almost. Because it's easy to overlook the end of verse 3. And what does he say there? He says, it's highlighted, I think, right? Yeah. My mind still guided, guiding me with wisdom. He holds a little something back because amidst all of his influence and all of his wealth and all of his resources, he had already observed a paradox in pleasure-seeking. What is it about pleasure? The more you seek it, the less of it you will find. The more you seek pleasure, the less of it you'll find. And he had the wisdom to begin recognizing that. Recognizing, he recognized that being a hopeless romantic or an addict really is hopeless. And he goes on to take his resources and attempts to build a utopia for himself, as we hear in verses 4 and onwards. Well, they'll just come up on the screen here. You'll see what he does with his wealth. He uses his wealth to buy slaves, to build great projects. He builds homes. He builds gardens. He builds landscapes. He, builds, he, he develops agriculture. He supports the arts and theater. In our day, maybe he's building the perfect community with the perfect schools that represent the diversity of the community. And everyone has access to the best resources. He supported the arts and theater. It was the original New Deal before Roosevelt or the OG utopian vision of Karl Marx or Adam Smith, depending on what, <laughs> like, uh, where, where you're coming from. In other words, he was trying to build the perfection of the Garden of Eden, but on his own terms. As much as he had accomplished, what did he say was the outcome? Well, the Good News translation of verse 11 says this, Then I thought about all that I had done and how hard I had worked doing it, and I realized that it didn't mean a thing. It was like chasing the wind. 
of no use at all. The things that he thought were pleasurable and had inspired beauty did not last. He realized that what he had sought after was, wasn't truly timeless and lasting. And a renowned travel chef turned travel host, uh, renowned chef turned travel host Anthony, Anthony Bourdain says it really blunt, just as bluntly in the opening to his uh, documentary, Roadrunner. He says, you're probably going to find out about it anyway. So here's a little truth telling. There is no happy ending. Unfortunately, I think he took that to its end with his early death. You know, last week, we spent some time on vacation visiting family in Colorado. And as we went for a walk in the neighborhood, we walked through a typical subdivision, you know, beautiful matching houses, you know, with Christmas lights and everything, with bike paths and, and rec centers and a wide, wide curving roads. But as we walked along these you know, paths that separated the subdivisions, we began to notice some patches of black grass. You can kind of see it on the right side there. We noticed that some homes hadn't, ha had parts of their fences that were fallen over. They had singe marks, kind of like this home that's displayed. We, came, we were walking from the right side there. But when we walked around to the front, we realized that this was the only home that was left standing in the entire subdivision. You may have heard about the Marshall Fire in Colorado. That was, you know, accidentally, well, they actually don't know how it started, but it's fueled by 100 mile per hour winds and blew, uh, burned through a thousand homes in a day. Here, there's a couple of before and after sh shots there. You can see. Yeah, so that, the above one is the Google, courtesy of Google Maps. That's the exact same house, and that's the picture I took a couple days ago. Nothing is left. You know, events like these are a stark reminder that all the things we think offer us safety and security, all the things that we think offer us beauty and bliss, they can be gone in the blink of an eye. We have no control over it as much as we think. And some of you have already come wise to this foolish promise of pleasure-seeking. And like Kohela does in verses 12 to 16, you focus your attention on living a wise and prudent life. And maybe inspired by someone as wise as Kohelet, you know that picking up scratch lottery cards probably isn't going to make you rich. You know that eating a healthy diet and, and exercising regularly is going to be more beneficial for you in the long run than drinking soda every day and eating out. Maybe you've come to know that spending according to a budget and saving for emergencies and retirement are all wise moves to make to enjoy life better. And if you're a follower of Christ, maybe you've even learned that giving more than, up to even more than 10% of your income through tithing is not really a foolish move, but an actually an act of wisdom. And maybe you might even see the wisdom in giving generously towards those uh, in need, especially when you get nothing back from it. You see that helping others isn't, and supporting a worthy cause isn't just to appease your privilege, sense of privilege but it's to actually help the world become a better place because it helps people get up on their feet and become contributing members of society. But if you follow this, and you, maybe you believe in all those things and you're living all those things, but if you follow the trajectory to its end, do you realize that you, you might arrive at the same conclusion as Kohelet, as he says in verse 14 and 16? 
There he says, the wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks around in darkness, but I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Verse 16, for the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have already been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise, too, must die. You see, whether you live foolishly, whether you live wisely, we all arrive at the same destination. <laughs> One fate comes to us all. That fate is death. Whatever distinction you might make in this life between folly and wisdom, as admirable and as well-intentioned as wisdom might be, or as impactful as a wisely, life, wisely lived life might be, it all amounts to nothing when death, death, uh, death knocks on your doorstep. Having moved from the west coast of Vancouver to D.C., I've noted one significant difference in the people who live and work here. You see, on the west coast, and especially in a place of natural beauty like Vancouver, you work so that you can live. You work so you can fund all your pursuits and pleasures that bring you life. You work to live. But here on the East Coast, and especially in a place like D.C., I've noticed that people live to work. They live to, they come to D.C. to make a difference, to advance their careers, to connect with the right people so that their advance, careers can advance. But Kohelet has something to say about our work as well. After reflecting on the meaningless and the vanity of pursuing pleasure and wisdom, the final sections of this chapter, of chapter 2 exposes the assumption that many of us seek meaning in when we seek it in our work. In verse 17, he says, I hated life because work is meaningless. All of it is meaningless. I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. In verse 22, what do people get for all the toil, all the work, and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. How many say amen to that for your work? In the words of Kohelet, with these realities, why shouldn't we hate our work? What's the point of living? Why even bother with our work? Why bother trying? We hear it maybe in the cry of some of the younger generations. What's the point of trying when I come out of college with six-figure debt? And I'm paying half of my, more than half of my income towards housing. And you older generations tell us to, you know, step, stop complaining and, and, and work harder. But the system is rigged against us. It's all pointless. At this point, maybe you're not feeling that great. You say, Andrew, I came to church today to be inspired and encouraged. Not to fuel my depression and anxiety. Well, thanks for riding with me so far here. Okay? Kohelet doesn't stay hopeless, so bear with me. And if verse 16, we hear uh, Kohelet's frustration towards this meaningless of all of our endeavors in light of our death. And verse 16 offers one of the first explicit uh, references that Kohelet makes to this temporary nature of our existence. Here, Kohelet helps us begin to think about life in reverse from the perspective of our eventual death. See, upon our death, 
all the fruit of our work and all of our wisdom and all of our pleasure disappears. It's forgotten and surpassed even after our death. We mentioned this in, our, in the introductory message two weeks ago with the idea of the Latin phrase, memento mori, which means remember your death. You know, while Cahelet put, put what Cahelet puts bluntly reminds us that our lives and our successes may not be remembered after we die, but we are invited to consider one act of remembering that can bring true meaning to our present life. All of our pursuits don't have to be depressing. They don't have to amount to nothing. In the NRSV, we are told, and it's here up on the screen, version of, NRSV says verse 16, and we'll see chapter 3, verse 11 as well. Gohelet's honest witness and even outrage at the inevitable and universal end suggests that there's a sort of a divine discontent that is with every human. He introduces this idea of remembering in this chapter, and we'll unpack it a bit more in next week's message on chapter 3, which contains that often quoted verse, he has also set eternity in human hearts. We find that the two words, enduring in the verse, uh, NRSV version of verse 16, and eternity in chapter 3, verse 11, are actually the same word in the original Hebrew. It means forever, enduring, eternal. You see, deep within the heart of every human is not just the longing for wisdom to balance work and pleasure. And neither is it a search for meaning and significance to be found in our work or found in our pleasure or found even in the pursuit of wisdom. And that search is what the Christian story describes as a longing for the eternal, a longing for the divine. Gehelet bursts the bubbles of temporary meaning and significance that our pleasure, our wisdom-seeking, and our work are all promising us. And revealing that we're actually longing for something more enduring, more eternal to pin our hopes upon and to build our lives upon. And that brings us to the hint of hope that Kohelet offers to us in the final verses of this chapter 2. There he says, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Now his comment towards pleasure and work seems to be an about face here in verse 24 and 25 from what he's all been saying all through the rest of the chapter. Is Kohelet delusional? Or perhaps as a mental health expert might say in our day, he's ADHD and suffers from bipolar disorder. He has these really low lows and now he has this high high. But no, Kohelet helps us frame our work and pleasure and our wisdom rightly. There are, they are good and necessary gifts to be enjoyed in this present life. Now, some might read Ecclesiastes or the Bible and be tempted to shut down, you know, all enjoyment and pleasure because that's more faithful to God. That makes you a better Jesus follower. Deny yourself any pleasure. And others might be tempted to just do away with work at all because, hey, it's all pointless anyways. That's, it's in the Bible. <laughs> It's meaningless, right? So why work? It's in Scripture. The wisest man alive said so. 
but both of those would be the wrong response. What spoils us is not pleasure or work or even wisdom seeking in and of themselves. What spoils us is when we try to get more out of those things than they were intended to give to us. What spoils us is when we put more hope into those things than they could ever offer. When we put uh, imbue meaning into our work and imbue meaning into our pleasure and even wisdom seeking apart from God, it will be finite, it will be temporary, and it will ultimately be meaningless. But when we recognize that they are gifts from God to be stewarded well in this present life, then we begin to recognize eternal and enduring significance in all, of our, all that we do in our work and in our pleasure and in our wisdom. That's why Kohelet suggests in verse 25, apart from him, that's God, who can eat or have enjoyment. Apart from God, we can never find that meaning in all that we do. How do we experience this union with God that brings true meaning to our pleasure and our work? Well, on this side of the cross and, on, and the resurrection, we get to see what Kohelet never got a chance to see. We see the invitation of God to eternal and satisfying life through God's Son, Jesus, that we sung about this morning. It's only through faith in Jesus that we have the assurance of never being apart from God. And so we can enjoy what gives us pleasure. We can work and we can uh, pursue wisdom, but not on our terms, but in light of, of Jesus' invitation to find enduring and satisfying life in him. And my friends, you may find yourself frustrated with your work. You may be distracting yourselves with pleasure on your phones, on your Netflix. And you may even be pursuing wisdom with good intentions, advancing your degrees. But perhaps God is at work bursting these bubbles. Will you take note of that discontent and direct it to, to, to this invitation that God is giving to each one of you? That you might find the enduring and meaningful life of God in Christ at work around you. May you be attentive to that still, small voice of the living God inviting you and me to this abundant life that's to be experienced now in Christ. Amen.